You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. You know, the man's been in prison. The man was on tag when he first went into a boxing gym. Anthony Joshua's early teenage life was violent. Alan Minter, John Conti, John H. Stracy, Charlie Magri, these guys were giants. Terrestrial TV giants, newspaper darlings, selling out Wembley, selling out the Royal Albert Hall, all of them skinned. Then the guy says, and of course, then we've got wrestling's Gorgeous George, and suddenly Gorgeous George just jumps up and says, and I'm gonna rip his head off! Hi there, my guest this time on Sports Content Strategy is Steve Bunce. Now, he is Britain's foremost boxing journalist. He's a raconteur, a writer, a collector of stories. So when I wanted to talk about the sweet science of storytelling, as I've called this particular podcast, he was the guy I wanted to talk to. Boxing, I've long argued, is the sport that lends itself the best to the art of storytelling. That's why boxing movies are the best sports movies out there just think of a list of sports movies it's going to be boxing movies that are right at the top of that list check out the show notes for links to steve and of course the links to all my social media and if you need a consultant you know where i am anyway let's talk about boxing let's talk about stories and we're going to start with leprechauns by the way with this man my name is steve bunce and since the mid 1980s i've been writing and talking about boxing and sport. I've been at seven Olympics, but mostly boxing. Started off in local newspapers and the trade magazine, Boxing News. And right now, January 2020, I work still for The Independent. I file copy for ESPN. I have a podcast series uh, each year on Yahoo. I appear as one of BT Sport Chief Boxing Pundits and I work on BBC Five Live uh, on their live broadcasts and also on their award-winning number one boxing pod, Costello and Bunce. That's what I do and that's what I've been doing for for an awful long time. The reason I asked you to do this podcast on storytelling in sport is because it's firmly my belief that boxing is lends itself to stories like no other sport. Could I throw one at you straight away? I'm going to take a huge gamble at the start of this podcast. And I'm going to throw in the name, Eusebio Pedroza, and the word leprechauns. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Can you tell me that story again? I think I've got it right. Well, Eusebio Pedroza was about 794 when he came to... Loftus Road, QPR's ground, to fight Barry McGuigan to defend his WBA, I think, featherweight title uh, back in about 1985. It was uh, a glorious night uh, in many ways, uh, mostly because it's one of those sporting events, not rare, all the great sporting events have this attribute, in that everybody you meet was there, which is physically impossible. Barry McGuigan, who won the fight, and Barney Eastwood, who promoted it and made a lot of money from the fight, they've often joked over the years of just how much money they obviously lost because they've met since that night 60, 70, 80, 90, 100,000, 300,000 people who were there. And the reality is that about 24,000 people um, were actually there. Now, the leprechauns. Now, McGuigan was led to the ring by leprechauns and they bounced all over the ring. 
before Eusebio, before the fight of Eusebio Pedroza. Um, leprechauns don't obviously don't exist. There is a better leprechaun story, and it's a really good leprechaun story, and that it, it's to do with the rematch between Belfast Ray Close, who works now as a baggage handler at um, Belfast International Airport and Chris Eubank they'd met for the first time in Glasgow and it was a really close fight Eubank needed to drop close I think in the 12th round to get the decision Eubank had lots of fights like that where he needed lots anyway they made an immediate rematch and Don King I think was the co-promoter alongside Frank Warren and probably alongside, and alongside Barry Hearn and that was back in the days of ITV when it was only on boxing was only on TV for one hour we forget that. People talk about oh, the great old days of ITV when you knew. those. There were about eight fights a year in 1991, 92, 93, 94. Okay, it was Eubank, it was Ben, it was good fights. Michael Watson, Chris Eubank uh, rematch, uh, 21st September 1991 at White Hart Lane, being one, 17 million people watching. But there were so few fights. But what's more, they came on with the boys just about in the ring. But they couldn't that particular night. Because Barney Eastwood, who was uh, Ray Close's manager, decided to use leprechauns to try and spook Eubank. Uh, knowing more, knowing, knowing then what Steve Collins would discover and exploit a few years later, is that Eubank, for all his steely reserve and incredible heart and chin and desire, was easily spooked. The kind of guy that can't watch E.T. thinks it's a documentary. So he was really <laughs> struggling, Eubank. <laughs> These leprechauns jumped into the ring and they were really inebriated leprechauns. But they also had loads of dust which they were flying up in the air and this dust, like not dust, like spank, sparkles. You know the kind of thing you, 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 your daughter has at her second birthday. You know, little sparkly stuff goes up in the air. So they were throwing all this stuff up in the air. Of course, it created a problem. As the clock was ticking, they're already live on TV now. There's only 58, 57, 56, 54 minutes going. You know what the problem is? It's quite honest. It's quite obvious. That you can't fight in a ring with all these tiny little specks of gold on the floor and gold and silver on the floor because if you get cut and your glove touches the floor and it gets in a cut, it can influence the outcome of a fight. That's why referees wipe the gloves of a boxer when he gets up from a knockdown to make sure there's no dirt or anything on his gloves. It's a completely archaic system, as though that's going to clean a glove. Is that that's why he pulls them to his chest? Yeah, exactly. To, to, ah, to get, I didn't think that. So back to back to the left. So they then had to clean the ring and. And if you actually watch the full broadcast of that fight, which I'm sure you can do on one of the available outlets, um, it's great that it's raining. Yeah, it's just started uh, raining. <laughs> if you actually watch the broadcast of that fight, the first four or five minutes, it's there's Don King kicking stuff with his foot, Barry Hearn sweeping desperately, and a man called Mike Goodall, who was erecting rings then, and was still erecting rings for 25, 30 years later. In fact, he put the ring in Saudi Arabia took the ring from York Hall for the Anthony Joshua fight in Saudi Arabia recently. So they were sleep sweeping the ring to get it all out. So leprechauns have been used quite brilliantly by promoters to try and get into the heads of non-Irish opponents, whereas Irish opponents look at them and go, you're just a leprechaun. <laughs> now, I've mixed up my leprechaun stories there. because I, I was, well, there, were, I was, there were leprechauns, in, um, there were leprechauns in, in 1985 at that fight, but I'm right. not sure if they... Bothered Pedroza because Pedroza was the kind of man that just didn't wasn't phased by anything. Right. So, so you, you mentioned Saudi Arabia there and the fight between um, Andy Ruiz and Anthony Joshua most recently. That rain reminds me of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Ago. About to put a poncho on. Yeah, um, but the the interesting thing about the narrative there was obviously Joshua had lost the first fight, and 
we had this narrative. It, it was an indication of the specialness of boxing with regards to storytelling because you almost had a T-junction in their career. Had Joshua lost that fight, yeah. you were building up to one narrative of, you know, he was always uh, susceptible, he was always vulnerable. He was never and, a fighter we were told he was. Yeah, and Andrew Ruiz, well, he had the fast hands, but he was the fat kid who ate Snickers, blah, blah, blah. But he had these tremendously fast hands. And then those narratives, which, which you were building up to, diverged completely because of the result. Yeah. You, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. I mean, it was, it was a fight going in where everybody was convinced about how it would turn out. But I've still not met anybody who, before the weigh-in, before we saw Ruiz in all of his blubbery glory, I still haven't met anybody that can say, here, I look. I predicted Lentley Joshua's shutout wins all 12 rounds, no knockdowns. Rubbish. Because, and that's the beauty of it. So you've got this collective group of people at ringside, certainly the people I know, with averaging about 30, 35 years of boxing information inside their head. So you've got literally got thousands of years of boxing information and all of those people at ringside, the dozens and dozens of people. And yet no one at 10 to 5 on the Friday before the weigh-in could have given you a slip of paper and said, I'll tell you how it's going to end, Clarky. Joshua's going to win all 12 rounds, hands down, and there'll be no knockdowns. You couldn't have... So, and that's the beauty of it. So how, how, have we, how do we think we know so much about it? So that's, that's part of it. So you're talking about uh, some sort of T-junction where one goes massively left and one goes massively right. That happens, obviously, because Joshua wins. But my asterisk, which I like to attach to it, is but he didn't win like anybody said he would win until Ruiz weighed in weighing that much. And, I mean, I'm smiling now because you have to laugh at it. I mean, you know, 10 minutes after the fight, I'm hearing people, I'm, you know, I'm still on air. I'm taking my headset off every now and again because people are calling me or saying something to me and I'm like nodding. Then I'm hearing, I knew that would happen. Oh, yeah, I, knew, I expected that. And you're thinking, you're lying. What, what do you mean you expected it? You just decided not to write that in the paper. That's it. So you should be sacked. If your sports editor finds out that you knew he'd win all 12 rounds, but you predicted he'd stop him in four, then why did we run your prediction? Well, at, at, <laughs> least, at least you should be making a heck of a lot of money on the side through yeah. your bookies. You, 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 know, you know, there's a very famous... Boxing seldom makes the front pages of newspapers. It makes the back pages often enough these days. And, and when it makes the front pages, it's because of some sort... Generally, it's because of a problem, you know, so... If someone's very famous, and there might be a line, you know, if Tyson Fury ever were to ever fight Anthony Joshua, that might make the front pages. But generally, it doesn't make the front pages. But back in 1964, it famously made the front pages of the Daily Mirror. And it was like a rogues gallery. It was the right time because it was at the time of all the mad villainy with the Craze and the Richardsons and all of the mad gangs in London all being arrested. And the front page was a homage, if I can use a little bit of fancy language, to all of those gangs who were constantly on the front pages. It'd have a picture of eight members of a gang, and underneath it would say, you know, chief torturer prefers soaring off toes. Torturer number two, particularly good at setting women's hair on fire. And it would have these pictures of these guys staring at the camera. Well, what happened? After Sonny Liston lost his world heavyweight title 
to um, Muhammad Ali as he became after he beat Sonny Liston. Goes in the ring as Cassius Clay and comes out as Muhammad X. But the Ali is added six weeks later. But the rogues gallery on the front page of the mirror two days after the fight, because obviously the timing didn't help, were eight British journalists at ringside who got the prediction wrong, including the mirror's own man. It's one of the greatest front pages in history. And when I, I read about this, um, I read about this a couple of, oh, about six, about eight months ago when I was doing a, a pod I do for Yahoo on the heavyweight championship. So I read about this and I thought, no, nah. I sort of half heard it, but I don't believe it. And of course, you can't call anyone up, they're all dead. And I mean that, I mean, it's really mad. It's only 64, but they're all dead. I was two years of age, but everybody involved in this is dead. And anybody I can speak to who might have known, they're either dead or they've lost it. And I mean that in a nice possible way. So I found it. It's the beauty of online. And there is this rogues gallery of the men that got it wrong. <laughs> they stuck them on the front page because they got the prediction so wrong. Because if you remember rightly, and, and half of this had to do with the fact that the mirror is the paper who shamefully asked their journalist to take a taxi from the Miami Convention Center to the General Hospital to work out how long it would take Art Clay to be transferred in an ambulance from the ring to the intensive care unit, which is where they imagined Sonny Liston would put him. So their way of getting out of that shameful request they made of their journalist was to stick him on the front page. Rose Gallery, Game of Shame. That's a story for you, Rich. Well, no, but, that, but I'm looking at these stories because my point is that, yes, you're building up to a denouement, a, a, a battle where there will be an obvious winner and an obvious loser because one will have his hand raised yeah. at the end. And it builds up so much over time. The stories that are told are repeat or revenge, reven redemption or sporting oblivion. And we've seen that throughout boxing, the same, same stories retold. I mean, you... you I was listening to your excellent pod um, on the, the the Yahoo pod on the heavyweights. Leon Spinks, yeah. seven arrests in seven months. It's absolutely hammering down, by the way, if you can hear it in the background. But uh, seven arrests in seven months. They drag him out of the hotel in order to him fight against Ali uh, in the rematch, having uh, having having beaten him after hard the Hard to invent, true. Yeah, eight fights. Eight hard fights? to invent, but all true. Right, so, I mean... There's an incredible story. I mean, he's known as the guy, the gap tooth guy who won after eight fights. He beat the champ and then threw it away. And we're retelling that story through Andy Ruiz. Andy Ruiz, yeah. Without the sex and drugs and rock and roll and arrests. And of course, he's he's, he's gravely ill at the moment. Yeah, um, Leon's gravely ill, and of course, uh, Ruiz ended up getting brilliantly remunerated and set for life. And one of the things he did was invest in things that would last i.e a house and a home paid for for his mother mm. uh, so he did you know he did all the things that leon was always going to plan was always planning on doing really what leon did was just spend loads of money on loads of hangers on and loads of a-class drugs loads of a-class drugs and buy silly cars which he kept getting arrested in and just act just acted like a fool on a mission to self-destruct and boy oh boy he did he did. Um, obviously, boxing very adversarial, uh, but in terms of the sporting stories around it, you've got press conferences where the press conference is done together. The fighters are there together. They can criticise each other, slag each other or off in not. front of each other, or not as the case may be. You've got a, the way in the day before with a face-off, which is about as adversarial as it can get. Yeah. So boxing is 
is deliberately creating these stories and recreating these yeah. stories because the weigh-ins didn't used to be a part of it because they're on the day. Of course. And now they're a day before. So boxing's arranged itself. Yeah, it's arranged itself to be adversarial. Do you understand? Do you, no, and it, has that changed in your time? No, no. Well, it has because uh, obviously when I started, weigh-ins were on the day and the weigh-in was just a weigh-in. It was you trying to work out your day back then. I'd try and double up and do a football match no matter where I was in the country. So if I was in Cardiff, I'd try and do a football match. If I was in Manchester, Liverpool or Newcastle, I'd try and do a football match. If I was in London, I would definitely do a football match. So it was a bit of a pain really sometimes you had to go away in because it meant you couldn't go and nick 100 quid for covering Charlton against somebody. In all fairness, you should be always paid a lot more money for covering Charlton <laughs> against anybody, but hey-ho. The beggars couldn't be choosers. It was like nicking a bit of money for Today newspaper or Sunday Express or something like that. Um, but the 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 adversarial the adversarial content in boxing has possibly reached its optimum. I think we've had so many great fighters hating each other. Some of it genuine and some of it mildly fabricated, but not but not completely fabricated in the last three or four years. We've almost got to go some to go above where we've been with Wilder and Fury goading each other. Although just in the last 48 hours, they've had a really civil press conference where the two of them sat on leather thrones, basically opposite each other, didn't go for each other's neck and <gasps> didn't even block each other out when they were talking. They answered questions from the audience in a TV studio or part of the sales pitch for their Feb 22nd fight, and they also complimented each other. It was really bizarre, because all I've seen them do is nearly fight each other. And then, of course, we had the peak and the pinnacle uh, would probably be Bellew and High over that period, which was, you know, mildly pantomime, but quite genuinely nasty. And those that Bellew and High might have been about as nasty, successfully nasty, as stuff have been stuff has been but going back a few years when there was a bit of needle is what we used to call it before we called it whatever we call it now with regards to people getting at each other's throats at press conferences you know you know it was genuinely nasty because it was generally two kids who might have known each other through the amateurs that maybe had fought each other as amateurs, so there was some bad blood going back an awful lot of years. So none of it was manufactured. At the moment, we've got you know we've got these Twitter beefs where two kids two kids are challenging each other. Then you know if they ever fight, which doesn't often happen. I mean, so many of these Twitter beefs or Instagram beefs or Facebook beefs, they actually don't come to anything. But we 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 we've got now. So you know sometimes you go well way in now. And there'd be seven or eight instances where the security are keeping fighters apart. And you have to look and think, oh yeah, I know that kid. He's had three fights. He's unbeaten. Uh, I remember Mark Kayler, was it Roy no, Gums? And Eric Mark, Mark, Mark Kayler, Roy Gums was Roy genuinely Gums. nasty. And Eric Christie as well? Yeah, Gums didn't really buy into it because it's not Roy's way. But they're literally brawling on the cobbles, right? That, 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 Roy Gums, sorry, Christie yeah. and Mark Kayler did brawl on the cobbles with find a fortune. In fact, not 100 metres from where we're sitting. Oh, really? not, no, not 100 metres, just, 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 just literally up the road at Stacky's Hotel outside by the fountain and that was really nasty that was a proper fight and then other other proper fights a few years after that in about 1994 Herbie Hyde 
uh, was rolling around the floor with the then WBO heavyweight champion, Bent. Michael Bent. Yeah, that was genuine. Was it? But yeah. hand on heart, hand on heart, those were flashpoints. Like Herbie Hyde didn't know to hate Michael Bent. Michael Bent said something where it went wrong. And Errol Christie and Mark Kayla, Mark Kayla allegedly said something and Christie responded. But Christie was a feisty man anyway. He'd, you know, he'd fight on the streets of Coventry all the way through his youth. You know, he'd get into, uh, you know, he'd get, you know, he'd fight his shadow. In fact, he, he died of cancer just a couple of years ago. It was really sad. But the, I mean, I shouldn't laugh because I love him to death, and I've known him since I was a teenager, baby. But he, the police nearly saved his life. He'd had run-ins all his life with the police, and the reason why the police nearly saved his life is that when Errol was wandering around, sorry to tell this story, I've got to tell it, when Errol was wandering around, he, he'd sort of bounce from fit place to place and he'd be noisy and talk, and he'd talk to anybody, he'd have a conversation with him and he'd realise, oh shoot, I was meant to be there, I'm late for a doctor's appointment or something, because that was what he was like, especially if you recognise him. So Errol <laughs> was in Lewisham one day, he goes see his doctor and he's got something wrong with his eyes or his ears, he's got to get some drops in them, no problem, so he gets the prescription and... He bounces out of there, sees someone he knows, goes in a cafe, sees someone he knows, goes over there, walks over there, goes to Boots or whoever chemist to get his prescription filled. He's got his hood up because it's cold, puts his prescription over the counter and he's like laughing and flirting with a woman behind the counter and just joking, just generally chirruping, you know, like he does. And if you know him, you'd laugh, that's why I'm laughing. The next thing you know, boom, he's jumped on, four or five guys jump all over him. Police, special terrorist unit. They... Not sure who he is. They think he might be a terrorist. He's got his hood up. I don't know. He fits the description. You know, I, what's, what's the description? He's walking around with a hood up in South London. That's, that fits a lot of descriptions, mate. And he's black. No disrespects to the police. That fits an awful lot of descriptions. So one of the policemen, everyone said, what's going on? What are you doing? What are you doing? Says who he is. One of the policemen's a boxing fan. Looks at him. Says, no, nah, leave it, Sarah Christie. Gets him up, they make sure he's all okay, you okay? And so he go, you know, he's laughing and joking with him now, doing pitch selfies, because that's the way Errol is. He's not even thinking about pushing charges against the police that have just jumped all over him. And anyway, as he leans his hand out to take his prescription, he oh, that hurts. So he thinks he's damaged a rib. Right, because these police have been jumping all over him. Now, the police panic a little bit now. True story, I've written about this. Talked about it on radio. The police then panic. And they take him to a hospital where he has an x-ray. And as Errol said, they've got some good and bad news for me. So what's the good news? And he's telling me this in real time. I don't know what, what, does, what the punchline's going to be. So what's the good news? He said, the good news is um, I haven't broken any ribs. Oh, it's brilliant. So what's the bad news? They've spotted something on my lung. or have more tests. Lung cancer. The police injury and enables him to detect the lung cancer, but it's sadly it's not early enough. Died two years later. Wow. Sorry, there wasn't a fun punchline there. No, that's but 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 sorry, there wasn't a fun punchline. But that was my Errol Christie. Errol, Errol, so Errol Christie, get back to Errol Christie, Mark Kayla. What happened in their build-up to their brilliant fight at uh, Wembley uh, was staggering and stunning and genuine and nasty. But it's, I mean, honestly, Rich, if we went to. Kel Brook's going to be fighting early February and a kid called Kid Galahad on the undercard and then that 10 others in Sheffield. We went to the Wayne on a Friday. I bet there's five or six pushing and shoving. It dilutes it, mate. Right, I mean, right, this is my point. So, and I, I've seen this written before. You've got boxers who are 
it's going back all the way to Muhammad Ali hyping up a fight who took it from gorgeous George the wrestler okay hype up the fight so I'm going to mash him I'm going to bash him I'm going to this that and the other and of course everyone's still aping that to a certain extent they're still copying that some are doing it some can't right Joe Kawasaki couldn't Tyson Fury can great okay so they're still doing it but my point is at the end of the fight they'll hug the opponent and say well we, we, we were just saying all those bad things to sell the fight and I've I've had conversations with footballers saying well we get hammered if we say we're moving to a different club for money yeah right and boxers are selling the fight yeah. with a story that they're saying is invented <laughs> to hype the fight for financial reasons do you see a sort no, of no 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 there, 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 there is issue there well there is an issue except that people know that it's not absolutely genuine some people think none of it's genuine. Well, it is. You know, Tony Bellew and David Hay really disliked each other. And they settled it in the first fight when Hay had to be so brave because he pulled his hamstring, couldn't move, and got smashed up for six or seven rounds before it was stopped. So they became friends. So the sales pitch for the second fight was slightly less slightly less over the top. Luckily, Hay steamed into Bellew quite generally, as if to say, I know I lost you the first time. That was a physical loss because of my injury. If I hadn't had the injury, I'd have beaten you. So Bellew got took umbrage at that and got a bit aggressive. But in general, in general, um, the public buy into it. Although, it's, that's why I was really surprised recently, and I'll just mention it, the Wilder and Fury press conference last week in a studio, television studio in Los Angeles. They were sitting down really mild and chatting to each other. If the first time people see them in Las Vegas, they lunge at each other, then surely people will look at that. I mean, see, you know, I don't make a habit of writing about fighters lunging at each other. So I know in history fighters that have disliked each other. There are several, there are there are combinations that didn't shake hands after a fight. There are combinations to, to, to this day, you wouldn't want to be stuck in a lift with. To this day, guys that fought each other in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and in the last 20 years. There are fighters that have done that. There are fighters that openly still hate people. Even if they've beaten them, they still hate them. So, so there is an awful lot of genuine animosity, but even the fake, not fake animosity, even the instant animosity can help because it can get a fighter's head in the right place. It can get the people involved, suck them in. The problem is you can't sell every fight. Yeah. And, 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 and we had a spell, it's eased a little bit, but we had a little spell, in fact, in the last few years, really, we had a little spell, probably during that high and bellu 18 months, where every fight was these two guys that have hated each other well since they've known each other, which is just rubbish. You can't imagine. You know, just a little, just a little diversion if I can, because I love a diversion. Please divert. Please. When gorgeous George influences Muhammad Ali, most people think it's because Muhammad Ali was watching loads of wrestling on TV. That's not the case. Muhammad Ali, when he's in um, Las Vegas uh, for a fight, so about sixty-four or something like that, he's he gets invited to a radio station and it's a big radio station there's a sports jock as they used to be known and he's in the uh, waiting area with a guy called who happens to be Gorgeous George and he's got quite long hair but he's really sensibly dressed and he's not in his outfit and he's not screaming and screaming and shouting and he's just sitting there talking to him and he takes an interest in Ali and they sort of shake hands and and they go in and Ali starts to do his Ali act. He's being a bit noisy, you know, just being a bit cocky. And 
you know, he does his little intro. Then the guy says, and of course, then we've got wrestling's gorgeous George. And suddenly, gorgeous George just jumps up and says, and I'm going to rip his head off! And, and, and Arlie says, I jumped out of my skin, I was scared. I don't know what was going on. So that's when he, that's when he ups his game from being a bit cocky to being the Arlie. Yeah, so gorgeous George was the influence, but not because Arlie had studied him. Not because Ali had studied gorgeous films, George's films, and sort of fancy that. No, no, it was because of that radio interview where Ali does his little bit, and gorgeous George just changes into this just demonic character, and Ali went, "Whoa, that'll do for me." Yeah. But these days, with the press conferences, yeah, we're talking about Wilder and Fury, or we're talking about McGregor and Mayweather. They're going all over the world. KSI, away, Logan yeah. Paul, they're, yeah. they're, they're going. So they've got to perform. But also, can you have that narrative turned up to 11 all the time? Well, Is it going to work that well, way? No, no, well, no, sh- shades you, can, you, you mentioned three fights there. That Well, two of those are some of the big... All three of those are massive fights. The big money start. fights. Yeah, the big money fights. So KSI and Logan Paul was... And they were global. Did time. enormous uh, stats and finances. And global, both in obviously in the UK and massively in America. Uh, the first Fury Wilder fight did good business. The second one's going to do four or five times the business. And McGregor and Mayweather remains one of the top three pay-per-views, if I'm not mistaken, of all time. So you, you're always going to be able to do basically what you like at events like that. My problem is you can't, and luckily it has been toned down slightly, you can't keep selling a good British title fight where the two guys are just respectful. You can't keep trying to ask Derek Delboy Chisora to do something crazy. He's already been fined about 150 grand in about six visits to the border control. You know, you can't ask fighters to do stuff they can't do. You can't ask them to hate people they can't hate. At that pant- full-on pantomime end, you can. You know, so when you've got the two best heavyweights in the world well give or take Joshua there that, that you know they can do their business so Joshua you know what's Joshua going to do if he ever fights Wilder and Fury it's not in Joshua to do what he did he, he can't he can't compete it's not he, he can't compete because they're going to win that he's game. got a thing Joshua and he talks about it and, and I respect him for it he said look if I do that I have to do it you know the man's been in prison the man was on tag when he first went into a boxing gym Anthony Joshua's early teenage life was violent. Let's get that right. The fact that he's a nice guy and he's just a wonderful role model. Let's go back. Let's rewind a few years here. Take you back 12, 13 years. He's a, he's a nasty human being. That's in there somewhere. So he can't laugh and joke and make out he's going to pick up a table. He can't laugh and joke and lunge for someone because he's not going to lunge through a crowd of people. No, that's not how you do it. You do a little move to the left like a rugby move. They go there and you go round and get to the guy because that's what he's had to do. Mm. That's what he's had to do when he was collecting, when he was enforcing, when he was being bad. So trust me, there'll be no theatrics with Joshua and and Eddie Hearn reinforces And I've had long chats with Joshua. Joshua will go over a table and get to him. And there's a famous... There's always precedent for this, okay? Larry Holmes, okay? One of the greatest heavyweights in history. Just unfortunately came after Muhammad Ali. And didn't have an adversary. And and, and didn't have an adversary. Fought plenty of good guys and was a brilliant fighter. I thought he was a genius, Larry. And I think, you know, he'd be in my top five all-time great heavyweights, my top ten all-time great fighters. Larry didn't really have a bad bone in his body. 
you know, he was mean in the ring, don't get me wrong, but, you know, he didn't have a bad attitude, you know, let's get it right, you know, he, he, he liked, you know, he was Larry Holmes. However, when he was, he fought in Florida, and one of the guests was uh, a guy that would go on to win the world heavyweight title, a guy called Trevor Burbick. And Trevor Burbick said something to Larry Holmes' wife whilst Larry was either in the changing room or getting ready to fight. Said something to him. We're not sure what it was, but said something to him. Anyway, Larry <laughs> wins his fight. No sweat. Comes back to the small hotel. First thing he does, goes up to the changing room, dressing into his hotel room with his wife to reacquaint himself. She lets slip something that has been said by Trevor Burbick. So Larry asks her again. She tells him again. So Larry gets dressed. Larry goes downstairs. And he gets hold of Burbick in the lobby. Burbick gets separated from him and taken outside. Now we can go to what actually exists on TV. And you can Google this, you can find it out. There's Trevor Burbick being interviewed by half a dozen people. One of them is a great friend of mine called Mike Marley. Okay? And then, as they're interviewing him, and he's saying, the heavyweight champion in the world just pulled my shirt. Look, he's ripped my buttons off. Trevor Burbick's talking like, I'm talking to you, I eye with you. And suddenly, in slow motion, you see there's about six members of the press, and suddenly they look off to their left. Then another one looks off to his left. Then they all look off to their left. And the guy filming it, it's a proper film job. It's like, you know, it's for, for a proper sports channel. Suddenly, they turn the camera around. And they're, they're talking at the back of a massive white limo. And running along the top of the white limo. Right, it's the only way to get to him. It's Larry Holmes. And as Trevor Burbick's talking, looks up in slow motion. And my friend Mike Marley's jaw drops. At that point, 17 and a half, 18 stone, Larry Holmes, the unbeaten heavyweight champion of all, takes off full flight and lands on Trevor Burbick. That's what it's like. That's a grudge. That's real. And you can Google it and check it. <laughs> so, so that one I didn't know. So, so, so consequently... You can't, you know, you can't suddenly put Derek Chisora in against, I don't know, Joseph Parker, nicest guy in the world, a Mormon preacher. They're not going to start fighting each other. Anthony Joshua and Joseph Parker was a loving. But they fought seriously. You know, there's no, there's no connection between what happens at a press conference, pushing, shoving away and pushing and shoving, swearing and shouting, and what happens in the ring. We just, we just imagine there is. There's no direct connection. Mm. Yeah. Just moving on. I want to talk about story art. Good luck. Yeah, I'm trying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about story art because you talked about Joshua there. You said Joshua came from a bad place and yeah. he's in a good place now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we have seen hundreds of famous fighters start in a bad place, go to a good place and end in a bad place. I, you know, I'm talking Liston here. I've got Joe yeah. Louis. There's, you could say Ali if you wanted to in terms, yeah. in terms of where he ended up health-wise. And boxing seems a very unique sport for that because the story arc yeah. has very few fighters. There are some, but they're not as celebrated as the mm. as the sad the no. sad demises, unfortunately. Well the in the last twenty years there's probably been more fighters that have wandered off into the sunset, younger, healthier and richer than there's been in the previous hundred hundred odd years. Um, that's because of the amount of money that's out there now, the amount of health and safety and the amount of caution and the the amount of options fighters had. I mean, you know, the fighters in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s had to fight each other. 
to earn it to get a living and fighting someone that's really good is bad for your health and yeah, they're so, fighting it every two weeks yeah, or three and, weeks. And, so in addition to fighting far more often they they had less options whereas now we've got you know in the last 30 25 30 years we've got four respectable belts so we've got four respectable champions and we've got at any given time you've got four respectable challengers getting ready and you've probably got another four challengers getting ready for once that fight's over so that takes care of 12 15 men in every single division having options they can go left they can go right they can go slightly left they can go far right whereas guys in the 50s 40s 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s had to fight each other more often because there were fewer places they could go the money that's available now, even allowing for inflation, even allowing for what people were paid then and what people are paid now in normal life and what a house costs or a car costs or a pint of milk costs is way out of line. It's way out of sync. I mean, kids are making, you know, 950000 and 1.2 million for fights now that traditionally would have been, they would have been earning next to nothing on a time when people weren't even making great money they wouldn't have been they would have been making really small amounts so we have over the last 20 years so many fighters wandering off to a better existence their health's better they're younger when they get out of sport and and they're wealthier there's still guys that are falling through but the you know the 50s 60s 70s and 80s if you know if we get a ring magazine and we look at may of every year for 50s 60s 70s 80s and 90s so we look at 50 50 sorry five decades 50 years of may of that year we look at who the world champion is at that particular time uh, so there's starts off in the 50s there have only been eight or nine champions up to now it's being 17 or 16 or whatever because one or two don't go as far as mini fly or light mini um, if we looked at those champions the majority of them would have ended up with next to nothing, nothing, or absolutely nothing. And, you know, someone doing half well would have been, you know, would have been celebrated. So you're absolutely so right. You know, I always wonder what would happen to George Foreman had he not got into the grill. I think he would have got a good living, a bit like Jim Watt did with Sky. But Jim Watt's contemporaries, the British, uh, Scottish lightweight world champion, Jim Watt's contemporaries from the 70s, men that were... Colossus, Colossus, they were just giants. Alan Minter, John Conti, John H. Stracy, Charlie Magri, these guys were giants. Terrestrial TV giants, newspaper darlings, selling out Wembley, selling out the Royal Albert Hall, all of them skint. All of them going from handout to handout to handout. Charlie works for the council, uh, Stracy. And Conti do a bit of after dinner speaking, but don't get the sort of money you think they would get. And Minter just, you know, has had different things over the years, all trying to get a living. None of those have got the money. Whereas their counterparts from the last 20 years, men with no disrespects, half the talent and 20%, 25% of the achievements, they're sorted for life, mate. So that's good. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yes. You know, that, 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 has to, that has to be a good thing. Now, I'm telling you, there are hundreds of fighters in the last 20 years who 30 and 40 years ago would have been out there struggling to get by because they wouldn't have made enough money. They've made enough money. You know? I mean, I, 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 with kids all the time, 
that you know they're, they're, they're cashing out in their heads they're talking about one or two more fights they've already got 20 bits of property they've got this they've got that investment they can't and that's great you know if I was in the 70s I couldn't have had that conversation with one fighter you know I could name 20 fighters now that have either just retired or are going to retire this year They'll never have to work or worry, and their kids will never have to work or worry. And is that because of the sanctioning bodies, the way the belts have changed, there's more options, or is there anything else? Because cause corruption and, and mafioso and yeah, it's, and money issues have been rife in boxing throughout. I, 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 think, I think it's more the, the big thing with the modern fighters. I mean, it's, it's still easy to spend your money. Look at Mike Tyson, he managed to spend whatever, 350 million or whatever. Well, he's doing doing well don't worry now he's in a great place financially a great place physically and mentally but it's just because there's so much more variety you know so the tv money in the bbc the boxers never received a single penny of the tv money in the 70s or the 80s that that clause was struck out in their contract whereas fighters now you know not you know i don't mean tyson furies and anthony joshua's other fighters they're in negotiating you know they're negotiating their TV percentage from a pay-per-view. And, you know, they're, they're sorting themselves out for life, mate. You know, and listen, they can still mess up. They can still have mistresses, wives, get divorced, end up having to pay a fortune. It's not it's not a 100% guarantee. But in general, you know, I'll show you 20, 30, 40 boxers from the last, from British boxing in the last 15 years, and I bet I couldn't show you 15 from the, from the previous 50. Just talk about characters, talk about, uh, about the, the managers and people negotiating. Well... Boxing managers are and promoters are massive sporting personalities in themselves, and that's different in boxing. I mean, Don King is a character, for example, that yeah. if he was written about, you would think it's a, 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 a bit of a stretch, shall we say, yeah. the invention of this particular character. You've got Frank Warren, who's existed for ages, been at the top of the game for ages. Eddie Hearn now in the social media age, you have, you know, um, out of context turn flying yeah. around. He's made a personality in themselves and they are part of the show and part of the narrative. Well, well, all three of those guys, one of the things that unites all of those guys is their work ethic. Is, you know, the tremendous amount of hours they put in and the tremendous amount of work they do. Constantly thinking of, thinking of fights, talking to fighters, trying to do this, trying to do that. Eddie, over the last 10 or 15 years and I worked over at Matchroom just to go in there once a month back in 2010 into 2011 and it was a really good year because that was the year that Eddie launched himself from inside his own his father's business Matchroom you know he'd gone from the darts to the snooker to the poker back to the darts to that and the other and he finally you know he always liked the boxing and he launched himself so when I started there in about the September of 2010, he hadn't put on a show yet, as Eddie heard. The matchroom was still doing shows, but he hadn't put one on. He put he put his first shows on during that year, and he acquired his first fighters during that year. He was speaking all sorts of fighters during that year. He subsequently left other other people, and so it was really interesting to see that in the genesis. Because at that point, you know, Eddie wasn't uh, doing big stuff on Twitter. You know, he was. I, I think he was on Twitter then. I'm not even sure he was on Twitter then. He wasn't doing big stuff. He wasn't filming loads of stuff with the different companies that do that sort of stuff. I filmed London, for instance. They came in. They started doing stuff with Eddie in about the May of 20, 2011. I remember talking uh, to Eddie about the stuff, and he let them in, and they were doing stuff in his garden with him. We sort of didn't know where it was going. 
because what we were doing then we used to do something that was like a pod but wasn't really a pod you could sort of download it from the matchroom website and so then you could listen to it on your laptop it was you know it was early i mean it's really bizarre that that was only you know 10 years ago but it was almost a lifetime ago in many ways so we didn't really know what i film london were, were going to do but the fact they were going to film with eddie for eight hours one day and put the whole thing up I mean, it's just you know, it's just not where would it? What is also what, what that's putting out? What does that mean? Where what? Where are you putting what it is you're doing? Where is this up? Where is this this mythical up? What does up mean? I'm not even sure I know what up means now. Ten years later, but yeah, I'm gonna get it up. Oh, that'd be up soon. That'd be up later. Well, what? Where up? Where? I don't understand. Like the chimney? Where, where do you mean? What is up? What does up mean? Anyway, so it was really new day. So, but what was interesting that one day a month I was doing over Matram doing the pod and interviews with other fighters, um, was that Eddie was eager. He was learning and he was thinking. And, you know, he was, he'd still take phone calls from people booking tickets for shows. Like, you know, it'd be prize fight. He'd be on the phone. He'd be writing the details down of the credit cards. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it seems like something from the 50s or 60s, but it wasn't. It was 10 years ago. And then it was during that year. And he, you could just sense, and he was trying to get a, permanent deal with Sky because his dad already had a deal and he was quite sensibly saying to the people at Sky look you've got four promoters at the moment that's four loads of headaches four loads of promises four loads of broken promises you know we can come under one banner which is going to be the Olympics in a couple of years we're going to do this and I tell you what mate the vision he had then and the amount of hours he put in all seems to have worked he sacked me in the end though unfortunately <laughs> But not no. It, it was a bit. It was a bit sadly because what happened at the end of that was the, uh, a company called Box Nation launch, which was, and Frank Warren uh, was behind Box Nation back then in two thousand and eleven. And Eddie said, "Well, you can't do both." So I said, "What do you mean I can't do both?" So well, you can't be in this office and then be in Frank Warren's office. And bizarrely, when I wasn't a kid, I said, "I naively went, well, why?" He said, "Well, because you you know too much." I said, "But I won't tell." <laughs> which is because that that's the truth but and as I said it I laughed he went there you go he said, and I said just because you know obviously in boxing all yeah. people do is tell fibs there's a lot of informers in our business but I, I wanted it because I needed the money <laughs> more than anything <laughs> so Tanta had gone so Tanta had gone tits up you know 18 months earlier I'd lost my fortune nearly lost my house at the clothes company remortgaged my house so I wanted the money so I could do both jobs so I keep my lips shut because you, you know you know I'd like to think I do keep my lips shut if someone tells me something I don't tell any, anybody else I don't need to do, do you think that because boxing it, it's it's not like a, you haven't got a league it's, you haven't got regular fixtures it needs to promote itself it's taken chances it's to, to promote itself on new media in a way that other sports haven't had to do yeah, well, it, it, it's, you know, uh, around that time, I mean, you know, Eddie, in all fairness, is to blame for this. You know, it was Eddie that first invited in the the YouTubers, which is an expression that covers all but doesn't really cover all, but you know what I mean by that. Club. Basically, anyone that isn't working for a national newspaper for a, a proper television station or a proper radio station, so anyone that isn't working for any of those or the main agency or ESPN... Anyone that isn't working for one of those, if he or she shows up with a camera or a microphone and is, film, is filming and, and recording stuff, that would be, they suppose the YouTube. So back in, let's say, a press conference in 2000 and 
11, there would have been, maybe I Film London would have been there. Because they'd started off not doing boxing, doing all sorts of celebrity style stuff. Um, so they might be the only people there. If we were at a press conference now, a big one, there might be 50 or 60 of these people. And it was Eddie that invited them in straight away. And the great irony is that last year, last summer, uh, Vasil Lomachenko, uh, arguably one of the greatest fighters in history, double Olympic medalist, won three world titles inside 12 fights or whatever, different weights. And a great fighter, and a really great man, really good human being as well, humanitarian. He was in London for a press conference to promote his upcoming fight with Luke Campbell, Olympic gold medalist, lovely guy from Hull. So they're at this press conference, and I was interviewing Eddie for Five Live, myself and Mike Costello. And Eddie went, you see that geese over there, Bunsy? So I looked over, he said, see him, he said. Last night, he called up, He's just set up a YouTube channel last night, and today he's interviewing Vasil Lomachenko. I said, well, Eddie, you're to blame. I know, it's mad, though, isn't it? And it is, it's crazy. We're the only, you know, can you imagine, now you, you've been around the football business, can you imagine eight years ago, six years ago, or even if, let's say, you're still working at Arsenal, imagine you working at Arsenal last year, and you got a request at five or six on a Sunday afternoon from a guy who's just set up a mylondonfootball.com YouTube channel. And he calls you and says, Hi Rich, I want to come to the Arsene Wenger press conference tomorrow. Uh, is that okay? Yeah, no problem. There'll be a message for the door. And I'll guarantee you 10 minutes of Arsene. I mean, you can't even say it. <laughs> you can't even say it. But somehow what we did in boxing is we went, okay, forget what they do in golf, tennis, rugby, cricket, or football. If you've got a camera and if you'll put something online, if you'll tweet about it, if you'll put it on Facebook or on your Instagram story, yes, you can come in and you can interview. But it's because boxing needs to sell itself in a different way. I mean, of course. I, I mean, I, I, you know, the answers clearly no to the question you asked me because, you know, I've been trying to get back and, and, and write football. I spent years writing football for the te- for the Telegraph as well before I, I moved to Arsenal, and I can't go and write. A Premier League match without being accredited by the Premier League. Yeah, yeah. There is a there is a restriction. Yeah, of course. There is a restriction. But the Premier League would argue it doesn't need to sell itself that more. When I moved to MLS and I was head of comms for an MLS club, yeah. there were bloggers that we would Constantly. let in and we were happy to have okay. them in because well, we needed that. Yeah, you know, in all fairness, it's you know, Anthony Joshua's changed is changing the rules slightly and Eddie and Matchroom and their um their press people young kid called Dan Bernard is a really good guy and uh, and 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 Ant Lever who is now based in America but was in charge for about 12-15 years in London uh, they're now starting to limit slightly Joshua's starting to limit quite heavily because he last year I believe launched his own YouTube channel and it's quite good I mean, it also came after the defeat as well it came it? after uh, if it wasn't after it was about the same time right. I, I, I think you're right normally think, restriction yeah, comes after yeah, a no, defeat yeah, I think it was after but you know so the, the idea was I mean, I, you know, I'll put an asterisk by that because I'm not 100% sure okay. but the pop, you know, what he said was you know Joshua would do these open days before his fights and he'd do six and seven hours and he'd try and give everybody everything so anybody that could get up to Sheffield to the English Institute of Sport would end up getting some time with Joshua, not the 15 minutes that the BBC would get, but they'd get three or four minutes. They'd stick it up and get their hits or their views. So, consequently, with Joshua having his own YouTube channel, he has severely limited the access available. And there might be more of that coming down because, you know, 
I'm known as a, being a critic of, you know, the, the YouTubers. I'm not necessarily a critic of the YouTubers. I still don't really understand what the endless fascination is with people showing up with a camera who have got no intention of watching the fight, who are hoping just to snatch four minutes with the trainer or six minutes with a boxer after the fight. That's... I mean, they may as well be backstage permanently. It's a really bizarre thing. I don't, I don't quite get it. I don't, I don't quite get it. I don't necessarily learn anything from it because there's just too much of it. Yeah. I, it, well, how old are your kids now? Uh, 25, 25, 21. Okay. Well, I've got, I've got a 10-year-old, sorry, I'm a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. And what they class as YouTube entertainment is very different to what I class as yeah. YouTube entertainment. Yeah, okay, yeah. That the um, very much... Um, uh, observational um, and not they're not looking for a line they're not looking for no. a story not looking for a line the no, observational no, no. and the and the documentary or documenting yeah. is enough in a sense and obviously there is this horrible word banter there was yeah. you know, joshing around which is which is which is much more but, fitting of a YouTube audience it's a different uh, audience reading your stuff in the independent that it is watching uh, IFL I'm watching both and I've got my eye over both and, and I'm also not dismissive like, I embraced the two YouTubers Logan Paul KSI fighting each other I was there for eight days with the BBC doing stuff every single day into different BBC outlets, either podcasts, we'd podcast every day, but I'd be on radio this one, they radio this one, they radio extra another day. I did about five different BBC radio channels, and I don't mean local, I mean national ones, uh, and including TV. I, you know, I embraced it for what it was, and I understood that I didn't think it hurt boxing. People that weren't there weren't earning any money, said it did hurt boxing. There you go. That's another anomaly, isn't it? Everyone that was being paid said it hasn't hurt boxing. Mm-hmm. Everyone that wasn't involved with the broadcast in any way said it did hurt boxing. Hey, go figure that one. That's neither here nor there. But but I, 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 I embrace that. But but I still find I mean, do we do we do we really I do I do the stuff at ESPN. I do the stuff at ESPN. I've been doing it since two thousand and ten. I go in used to be once a week, now it's more like once a month. And I'll do I used to do three two minute or ninety second hits straight down the lens. Green screen behind me, straight down the lens. Bang, 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 knock them off. I'm good at doing those ninety second hits. So the guy winds me up at a minute, I finish down, I can go to two minutes if I want to. A year ago, about a year ago, about last February, I go in, boss comes in, Tom, lovely guy, says Bunsy, it's all changed. So what do you mean it's all changed, Tom? Thinking, no, no, this is another job I'm going to lose. I've lost, <laughs> I've lost plenty of these. He said, no, it's got to be five minutes long for YouTube. Really? When's that coming? Just coming. So I said, so we've had 10 years of it and they've just decided things have got to be five years, five minutes. So now you've got to work on five minutes or four minutes 30. Now, the thing is, that might change next Monday when I go back to ESPN. They might say, Steve, it's all changed. We're back to a minute. Pods, for instance, when they first went crazy about six, seven years ago, they've been around, I, don't know, I understand they've been away around 10, 15 years. There's a woman I called Caroline Barker. She set up a, 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 a podcast company in something ridiculous, like 2008. She was really ahead of the curve. She worked at BBC London, now she's Sky Five Live. She's a great operator, Caroline, great offer, great friend. I mean, she was, uh, her company is called Jibber Jabber, still is. I mean, I think it's about 2008. Now, that's ahead of the curve, brother, isn't it? Let's get it right. So, um, with pods, and I've done... I mean, I'm not saying I've done more podcasts than anybody, but I tell you what, when it comes to sporting podcasts, I'm going... 
above 600. <laughs> right? Now, that is a shed load of pods for any one man to have done. All right? Now, most of those are single-handed. And none of those are cameos. I don't count this. This won't make the list because it's not my pod. It's your pod. But I don't mind sharing the Costello and Bunce thing that we, know, we, we, that we, that we do. I don't mind that because it's our pod. But I'm talking, I've gone above 600 pods. So I know a little bit about pods. In my pod time, we've gone from 20 minutes, 18 to 20 minutes, to it's got to be 25 minutes, to it doesn't matter if you go to about 70 or 80, to pull it back to 45 to make up for a journey. Well, what journey? Whose journey? Well, whose journey? The guy who lives in, in Hackney who walks to Islington or the guy that lives in Orkney who flies to Glasgow? <laughs> whose journey? What are you talking about here? Right, well, the, 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 I could give you a little bit of an answer to that. No, eh? You're the expert on well, this. Well, uh, we're going a little bit off topic, but I will see you. are allowed to, son. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, well, this is the thing. It's my podcast, right? You so do I can do, do what the hell I want. That's the great or thing Or you think podcast. you can, but you're not sure. <laughs> okay. okay, but the J- Joe Rogan is... Yes. His podcast is one of the most popular in the world. I think he's making more money than anybody else. I listened to a four and a half, half hour podcast with him and Alex Jones, the shot shot guy. Wow. Right? Now, and then literally, Joe Rogan at one point is saying, okay, I need to ask this question. I'm busting for the toilet. Can I just ask this question? Then I'll go away and I'll come. And Alex Jones, of course, is still going. Four and a half hours. He is as long as hell. Now, the answer... Even his short ones are still an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, I, when, wow. when I talk to anyone about being on the podcast, I say, I don't want to be short. I want to go in depth. I want to have a conversation because because every half hour, 20 minute podcast I listen to, for me, is too brief. Now, I've listened to your podcast, the Yahoo Boxing one. They're great, but they're scripted, right? Yeah. This isn't scripted. Yeah. And the and the power of this Because it's is, history. And yeah. So you need it to be scripted. Yeah, yeah. You, uh, can't, uh, you can't ad-lib that. And I get it. I yeah. get it. I, I get it. Absolutely. But with... Well, I knew with this podcast we're going off on tangents, and that's cool. I love going off on tangents because that's going to be more fun. But I'm, uh, but my but my ultimate example is I'm going to say I'm going to go in depth. I'm going to say I'm going to do at least an hour with you or whoever. Yeah. Then I'm going to look and see if it works. Sure. Basically, does that fit with me? Yes, I want to go more in depth in in terms of sports content strategy and this podcast, how I deal with topics. But also, is there an audience for it? And I'll look at the analytics and see if everyone drops after yeah, after yeah, yeah. 10 minutes, I might have to change it. Sure. So, you put a wet finger in the air, and then you analyse the analytics, but also see if it fits with your brand. Yeah. You do podcasts, mate, because you're one of the most engaging talkers on, on, yeah. on sports radio. You do fighting talk and all this kind of stuff. And that, I would argue, that by doing 600 podcasts, has got you a heck of a lot of broadcast gigs, yeah. heck of a lot of writing gigs. Yeah. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. Not, with this not, as, well. not, not as many as, as people imagine. I don't mean that nasty. I tell you what's interesting. But about, it's a huge brand builder. Oh, okay. That is it's a brand builder, and people do know. I thought it was interesting. The first series of the Yahoo, we were working on 18 or 90 minutes, because that's what we were told, coming on to 20. However, when I went back to do series two, they said, but Steve, can we also do, can we also add five, six, or seven minutes to every episode of series one? Because we now need it to be up to 25 minutes. So, so I'm, I'm hope, hopefully the third series, the 80s, is going to be commissioned. I don't know what's going to happen when I go in there and do that. I mean, the other thing you've got to, always got to bear in mind when you think about length of it is lots of people, including me, listen to it at one and a half speed, yeah. one and three quarter speed, yeah, yeah, yeah. and take out the gaps. Yeah. So a 20-minute podcast will end up being yeah, 13, 14 minutes. Yeah, yeah. No, listen, right? I, I listen, listen to it. I mean, yeah. if you listen to audiobooks, a lot of people are listening to those at least one and a half, yeah, if not 1.25. Yeah. So that skews the audio thing. Let me ask you another boxing question. Come on, sir. Right, so, I know that you take a 
almost romantic view of boxing writing. You're very, you collect quotes. Yeah. You revere writers. And for me, this is another indication of the special nature of boxing with storytelling that you've got Norman Mailer, you've got Hugh McElvenny, you've got George Plimpton, you've got loads of other guys that I, I can't even recall. Loads of great but British guys. Great British guys as well. But you used to get 10... 20 years ago, you were getting McIlvenny on boxing yeah. and you would get collections of boxing writing and Norman Mailer the fight and all these yeah. boxing writings in the way you've just started to get them on, on football. So yeah. boxing was ahead of the game because of its narrative and the stories you could tell well, around it. Thoughts on that? No, well, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to think, you know, not saying that I'm going to be compared to multi-millionaire writers like Plimpton or Mailer or geniuses like McIlvenny, but... I've been conscious of a tradition since I very first started. Um, I got started because uh, a man called Wally Bartleman, who worked for the Evening Standard, was basically getting too old to go to shows. So in the mid 80s, he asked me, because I knew him through a boxing gym, I knew if I would go to shows, call him up at five in the morning, give him the details, and then I'd end up getting a few quid. So I did that for a few years, but at the same time I was then doing boxing news until Wally died. Then I went and did stuff for the evening standard on my own, and that all fell out. One of the first editors I ever fell out with at the standard. But I, I was very, I was very conscious back in the mid eighties that you're working here in an incredibly rare and privileged arena where you are genuinely walking in the footsteps of people like George Whiting, Evening, Evening News, so Evening Standard, uh, and, your, and also Peter Wilson, the man they couldn't gag from the mirror, and of course, a contemporary of mine, a man I worked with, a man I traveled with, and you know, Huey McElvenny, and you were, well, you know, you, I was conscious of being with, and inheriting, and working towards it, so I'd like to think um, that, and I do, and I do revere those writers because their stuff was genius, and I also revere the stuff they had to do to file copy, you know, stuff that you know if you explain to someone under thirty now they wouldn't quite get it, you know, the idea that you have to uh, organise ways to file copy. When I covered stuff in Dublin, I was given a rough area and a rough part of a street by Neil Allen, who died last year went to his first Olympics on a boat to Melbourne. And he, when I first went out there to cover fights there, uh, pre-mobile phones, and he said, look, you won't get the one phone in the arena because it'll be full. He said, but if you go outside, you go across, not, not, not directly outside, just down on the right, there's several houses opposite. I can't remember the exact name, he said. You know, he, and he couldn't, that's what it seems like. I can't remember the exact name. Just knock on the door and ask to use the phone. <laughs> to do a reverse charges call back to your desk. So I filed copy from houses opposite the National Boxing Stadium, the only one in the world, still exists. I, I did reverse charge copy in the mid to late 80s of amateur England against Ireland at the stadium. That's part of a tradition that's not just gone, that when you tell people they actually don't believe you even people of my age but that's true so i've been very conscious that that i'm part of a, a rich tradition so it does mean a lot to me and i do respect and love those those old writers and 
Um, there's a man called Norman Giller who's written 102 books, I think. He's about 500 years of age and he's still on Twitter and he's just a genius, Norman. He was been a publicist, but just you, you name any great sportsman in Britain in the last 40 years or visiting sportsmen and he in he invariably worked as their publicist. I think at the same time he was a sub at the Daily Express, literally for 40 years. And he pays me unbelievable compliments, um, which you think, wow, that's going some. So yeah, I do, I do, I am conscious that um, I'm part of a dying breed. And I don't, I, I'm 57 years of age, I don't feel like an old man, really. I mean, I'm looking older, naturally, but I don't feel like an old man, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I haven't, you know, not walking around in a pair of gazelles and a pair of super tight jeans and making out I'm only, you know, only 52, not 57. I don't mind being 57 years of age, but I do feel when I look at the people I work with and, and I think, wow, I'm not only out, I mean, I'm, I'm the last man standing in our business in this country and that's not me being, that's not me exaggerating. I mean, the people that run Boxing News are great, you know, great. John Denon's a great operator. Matt Christie's a great operator, but they're boys. And then there's no one else out there, who, you know, with the 10 members of the press, 15 members of the press are there. I'm the senior one, but by some considerable, even some of the ones that are not, even some of the ones that are as old as me are older. They weren't boxing people years ago. They ended up in boxing after 40 years in football or they've done loads of other sports and they've ended up in boxing. You know, I mean, we're with these people and, you know, they never saw him fight here or him fight there. And these aren't fights 200 years ago. These are fights in 1991 and 1992. You know, I'd be sitting there at ringside. I'm the only person in that press pit that watched, you know, let's say... Chris Eubank against Nigel Benn. I'll be the only one that watched it. Now, that would have been, you know, that's for 27 years ago, 28 years ago. But if I was sitting in 1985 and going back 30 years, there would have been dozens of people that would have seen those fights. Whatever the fights were, whatever the comparative fight was, they'd have all been at these fights 25 years ago. They'd have all been there. Does that worry you at all? Because, I mean, I talked to, I was thinking about some of the narratives... That boxing's thrown up, and there's, I mean, race was a was a huge part for a period of time. Going back into the thirties, Joe Lewis, Max Schmeling, yeah. you know, money. I mean, money and corruption with with the with the with the throne fights, the mafia yeah. involved yeah. in the fifties, uh, particularly in America. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, I'm sure it happened to you. Um, money now, Floyd Mayweather yeah. is 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 gauche the way he. It's an obscenity. Yes, it's an obscenity. There's a huge class issue. We know there's a huge class. There aren't too many... I don't know if there's ever been a middle class or or a a champion or anything like that. No, there have been boxers that have not had as hard an upbringing, but they've all been hard-ish. Yeah, but those those narratives, are are they lost because they're only being covered by a younger generation who don't have that wider perspective? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I do three regular columns... A monthly, I do some monthly, boxing monthly. I've been doing it for 21 years. I do my indie column every week. I've been working for them for 22 years. And after a gap of 25 years, a few months ago, I've gone back to doing a weekly piece for Boxing News. Now, I, I write, I don't write on a laptop. I, uh, listen, don't, don't panic. I don't write by hand. I write on my phone. I gave up my laptop and my iPad five, six years ago. And I just How do you write on your phone? 
I, I did a thousand words this morning in just over an hour for the indie. I just write on my phone, just write direct. With two thumbs. Yeah, two thumbs, three fingers, whatever. And I write, so I write direct onto my um, my iPhone, um, which is which people find bizarre when I send them copy because they're expecting to open a a file and I just you know do it. There's not, and I don't have a spell check and a word count. <laughs> No, trust me. Trust You're me. serious. You write on your phone without a smell check and a word count. Yeah, I, don't, I just I just file it. So I file that straight to the end. Just on the screen of just your just iPhone the, just, Seven or whatever just, it is. Oh no, yeah, it's not a big one. Um, it's not even a big screen. <laughs> of course, it's that size. That size. So, so, so I, I, I write I write on that. Um, that's that's well. Even if I'm at home where there is a laptop, but I'll still write on my phone. So I did my nine hundred words for boxing news yesterday afternoon on my phone. And I did my eight to nine hundred words for the indie today in an hour and a half on the train. He said, and I have to be careful. I don't just live in the past every single column. So, you know, because I can do that. I can do it quite comfortably. You know, I can, you know, someone throws a chair at someone at a press conference. I can quickly ad lib as I used to do on the telephone. I can quickly ad lib 800 words on Larry Holmes and Trevor Burbick, the story I told earlier. It ain't hard. You know what I'm trying to say? And what I am good at is I've got really good diaries. So I know exactly what I filed for the indie going back 15 years. I know exactly what I filed uh, for Boxing Monthly. I know exactly what I filed for Boxing News. I used to keep the cuttings, but now I just keep what I've done. So, for instance, today I filed something for um, the indie and it was basically heavyweight state of play. Where are we with uh, Tyson Fury? and Deontay Wilder with regards to their press conference last weekend and the fight, this massive fight that's really it's just about to happen but you haven't really been made aware of it. And then for yesterday's boxing news column, it was about a fight called Johnny Nelson and the ridiculous amount of his former opponents who have met, who have died, naturally or unnaturally. So shot in the head, thrown from a car, bled to death, died from an infection on holiday or just a natural death. About 12 of his opponents have died. No other contemporary fighter. And I've had three or four of my friends do this. So so basically, uh, I keep a log. I keep a little log of what I've done. Um, and I'm very much aware that I'm keeping, I'm trying to keep a tradition going. You know, because there's far more to it than a 62-minute interview with Eddie Hearn on what's happening in boxing it's a, it's a great interview but it was it was only 24 hours since his last 62 minute interview and that was only 24 hours since his last 62 minute interview whereas i would argue that the stuff i'm trying to write that i'm trying to get out each week you know you're trying to give it a little bit of flavor you're trying to give it a little bit of love you're trying to give it a little bit of humor you're trying to give it a little bit of depth and you're trying to not educate people because that sounds pompous, but you're trying to let people know about things. But I can't just live in the past. You know, I can't just rotate the late 80s and 90s and what I know are the 70s. You know, I was talking to Ron Gray, a man called Ron Gray. He has the uh, dubious distinction of having fought three times, but only on two Muhammad Ali cards. Because he had, on one one of Muhammad Ali card when Muhammad Ali fought Henry Cooper here in at Wembley in 1963 I didn't realise but there was a heavyweight boxing tournament as part of the undercard eight boxers quarters semis and final and the winner got a thousand pound 
which is a fortune. And Ron lost his first fight, but the guy that beat him had a bad eye, so he came in and he lost his second fight. So but I was talking to Ron Gray about fighting on Muhammad Ali undercards. He fought on, then he fought again in 1966 at Wembley. And then he said, I went, wow, Ron, that's really odd. He said, yeah, he said, you know what, Steve? He's getting on a bit, Ron. He went, so I can't believe it. He says, you know what? He said, I look at who was on that bill. I look in the program and he whispered, he went, they're nearly all, they're nearly all dead. It's like like by saying it by not saying it loud, he would survive a bit longer. And so that, that's this kind of lost oral tradition, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that's important. Not that Ron's going to die because he's he's, he's, as, he's as strong as a, an ox. And that was what gave me the idea for Johnny Nelson. Then I told him about Johnny Nelson. What a one thing, Steve. I'm glad I never fought him. <laughs> anyway, I digress. But no, I would digress massively. But I do feel part of a something that's ancient, established and was once incredibly well respected and that now is certainly not as respected as it was has that happened to all sports writers no no i, I, just I, I would argue over the last 20 i mean the chief sports writer is a new invention anyway you know it's not a new invention but it, it, it's it's been around a long time but it's really taken off over the last 25 30 years and some of the new writers, some of the writers that are out there, people like Oliver Holt, people like Paul Hayward, their consistency over a 25-year period is quite sensational. I mean, what they've done in all the sports they cover and the amount of times, the amount of work they do. And, and, and I would argue that their stuff's as good now as, as anything's ever been. And I would argue that football writing now, cricket writing, rugby writing is as good as it's ever been. I would probably argue that about the only one that's gone downhill is boxing. Really? Yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, if Fury's fighting Wilder thirty years ago, or twenty-five years ago, or twenty years ago, in your head you're going to go, "Tell me what I'm going to do. I'm going to read X. I'm going to read Y. I'm going to read. I'm going to read three or four guys. I want to see what they've got to say." Now you might read Paul Hayward, but he's not a boxing writer. You might read him because he's a good writer. And I'd like to think you're going to try and seek out what I read. But after that, you know, whereas 25, 30 years ago, you might have gone, you know what, I'll have a look at Ken Jones, James Law, and I tell you what, I'll have a look at what Harty says in the sun. And obviously I'll get McIlvenny on the Sunday before. And how about that young whippersnapper at the Telegraph? I'll have a look at Steve Bunce as well. So you might have a look at four or five. I'll look at four or five football writers in different places, a couple of rugby writers, you know, when I'm, when I'm doing... When I'm doing you know, if I want to read, if I want to read something, if I want, you know, I'll get, if I, you know, if, you know, if I want to look at the Solskjaer thing, because I've not been paying an awful lot of attention, I, I spent, a, spent a couple of hours last week going through five or six guys. So I bounce from cross here, I bounce, have a look here and go there and do that, you know, so I'll, I'll do that comfortably, yeah. I, I don't think if I was a cat, if I was a boxing fan, I'd be doing the same with the current, with the current guys, because, you know, boxing is the, mostly their second or third sport. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. It's not. It's not a slight on any of the guys. They're all, you know, some of them are good guys, but um, it's not what they do. Boxing movies. Yeah. Now my argument again, again boxing, Rocky, Raging Bull, Million Dollar Baby, Cinderella Man, The Hurricane, somebody out there, someone up there likes me, The Fighter, and then there's When We Were Kings. Obviously, it's a yeah. documentary. Um, but those are incredibly classy, award-winning sports films. Yep. You don't get other sports no. 
making a canon of work like that or no. inspiring a canon. No, you're right. So, so you can find, you know, there's an occasional bit of an American football one and you can find a bit of this and a bit of that. You, you're absolutely right. And, and, and I think it's because it's that individual story that driven things. So you can, you can dig out one character. I mean, you could do the same with a football team or a rugby team with a cricket team of course you could but it's so much easier in boxing because there's only two of them and one of them's a good guy one of them's a bad guy that's essentially the story of all boxing films either someone's good someone's bad um, so I think it, it lends itself that way I mean I've I'm one of the few people that is not in awe of most boxing films I like aspects of loads of them you know I, I like I love aspects of most of them you know I don't think the fight scenes in Raging Bull are any good everyone seems to think they're the greatest fight scenes in the world. I don't doesn't make me a bad person I just don't think they're any good uh, Rocky outside of the ring I love once you get in the ring it's comic it's, 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 it's cartoon fighting yeah and then, and then there's you know there's other aspects and different bits and pieces you know we had a couple come out two years ago one that I was in one that I, I, I was part of um Called Journeyman, uh, made by Paddy Considine. Yeah, since good which, which is which is terrific film. I mean, that's terrific, and the fight scenes in that are good. They're, they're some of the best fight scenes because he involved loads of people that edit and produce boxing on TV to assist and help and consult on how they shot the film, um, which makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If you think about it, I mean, what the arrogance of people to shoot a film but to not involve people that have been shooting films or directing live boxing what a great idea if you want it to be live yeah, if, if you, you want, want it to be gritty and then the other one that came out that's about the same time though, you know it's like that, that buses the joke about London buses was Jawbone uh, written and starring a man called Johnny Harris who as a junior boxer 16 years of age won a junior ABA title and then found a bottle lost his way pulled himself round is now a very successful actor and he, uh, and he wrote in and wrote and starred in Jawbone, really good film, and that, that's quite gritty. Uh, but they came out at the same time, so I think aspects of those two are brilliant, are brilliant films. Um, it, it's a re it's a really odd thing. I just I'm, I'm not. I just I I I don't know. I have a real I real ambivalence towards them. My favourite bit of boxing, on film or TV, was from a episode of The Saint, in about 1963, when a man called um, Nosha Powell. Uh, one of the greatest all-time characters in boxing he used to be a heavyweight and uh, and was a friend of mine until he died and um, was a great character not so pal. I mean <clears throat> basically if I tell you six things he did right and if I tell you that all six were true you would bet your house right and any money you've got squirreled in foreign accounts that I was lying about at least five of them but all six are true I mean it's just you can't invent what Nosha Powell did um, over his life um, I'll give you I'll give you a, a little early one in um, something when he was 14 or 15 years of age in something like 1951 or something or 50 he was <clears throat> Lawrence Olivier's body double and all he had to do was ride horses. Fast forward 40 years, he was in charge of firing the gun every time Roger Moore did in uh, 007 because Roger Moore didn't like guns and consequently he was deaf in one ear. Both of those are true. Uh, and and 
and, and just fill fill in the middle. Anyway, so um, I've not done where I'm going here. So 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 it doesn't make any difference. So uh, I've no idea where I'm going. I've <laughs> to be honest, I've forgotten where we're going. Uh, there, have, you, um, have a look at your notes. D- yeah, well, it was fun, though. That, I well, I'm it. gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna allow you to li- because you wrote oh. a piece of boxing fiction which I've read. Yeah, well, I've fixer. read the fixer. Yeah, it was, it was ten years ago, and 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 I'd like to write it now because I th- I still think it was a decent little book for a first go. You wrote a novel, a sports journalist writing a novel. Yeah, f- about setting the world of boxing. I mean, there's, yeah. there's no other novels, British novels, setting the world of boxing. Really? No, not seriously. Like, there'd be a boxing gym, but that is set in the boxing world, yeah. So that was uh, quite... It, 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 did, it did half decent sales. It did about 4,000 sales. But it was... Um, the launch for that was just a comedy. This is what happens. In Manchester, there's two Waterstones, right? One is right in Deansgate in the centre of town and the other one is at this out at the Trafford Centre. On the day of the launch, um, David Hayes fighting that night. He's fighting at the Manchester Arena, which is possibly 200 metres from the Deansgate Waterstones. He's also... There's about a thousand bars in and around Deansgate, and then all the people are going to be drinking, and plus we're going to be in theory in that Deansgate Waterstones picture in the window. Steve Bunce, I was quite a bit of a profile at the time, so Tanta. Anyway, that seems like to make a lot of sense to me. I don't know about you. But equally, on the same day, Man United are playing Chelsea at Old Trafford. And out by Old Trafford is the Trafford Centre, where there's also Waterstones. And of course, what happens when Man U are playing at home is that no one goes to the Trafford Centre because you can't drive because of the parking. And it kicks off at three o'clock. So my press conference is at three. My launch is at three o'clock. They stick me in the Trafford Centre, which is as good as derelict. There might as well have been a bomb for it. So I'm out at the Trafford Centre at the exact same time that Man United are kicking off <laughs> half a mile away. There isn't a soul there. That's where I'm doing my signing. Not in Deansgate, which is like New Year's Eve in Rio with, with 20,000 David Hay fans who will just pay the 9.99 and end up throwing the books away. But I'm going to sell literally hundreds of copies at Deansgate. I mean, quite honestly... I'm going to sell, I think I might even sell a thousand copies of this book. You understand me? So I'm out there with The Fixer, the first boxing novel ever about, written by a British guy about boxing in Britain, a novel. I'm out there at Trafford Centre. They haven't got any books. <laughs> so not only is there no one to buy any, they haven't got any books anyway. So handy anyway. So that was how it started, and my agent didn't show up. Which uh, now, which is obviously no surprise. They're connected. You've not read another book, funny enough. Huh? No, no. Funny enough, I, uh, uh, funny enough, I, I wrote the big, big short, big fat short history of British boxing, yes, which Penguin last two, three years ago, which did really good business, but they didn't recommission it to, for me to make it to do the two, two, the two final years of the decade which we say that, that, that worked well but just last week I uh, submitted a 33,000 word pitch to my agent for another novel wow. uh, not set in the world of boxing and that's in and hopefully that's going to sell this year just a couple more go on sir boxing has traditionally worked for pay-per-view yeah pay-per-view other sports haven't yeah why obviously the all or nothing aspect of I it? think it's the all or nothing aspect it's the 
whatever it's going to be, it's going to be quick. It's going to be short. It's going to be the fact that uh, with regards to other pay-per-view events, what do you do? What do you charge for? What don't you charge for? So if it's if you if you made the World Cup football pay-per-view, when do you start charging? Quarterfinals? Semis? Just for the final? All the way through? Doing all night? Doing all over package? So you pay five hundred dollars. Uh, with regards to football, um, when do you charge? When don't you charge? People have been used to getting it. And with boxing, because the fans of the inability to organise is staggering. They moan now they've got somewhere to moan Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, but they'll inevitably pay. That's always the payoff in their mind. But I'm still going to pay it. I'm still going to get it. And directly, we know that it does benefit the fighters. And that's my argument. This is why I've always been a defender of pay-per-view. It's here. Of course, I don't want it. But if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have these fighters. You have to understand that you know guys fought in front of 17 million on ITV 25 years ago for comparatively peanuts. Even allowing for... I keep this is my favourite expression in this podcast. Even allowing for inflation. They still fought for peanuts, Rich. Mm. You know, you got to... These guys are fighting and these fights are happening because of pay-per-view. Without pay-per-view... Without pay-per-view, we wouldn't see Wilder and, and, and Fury. We wouldn't have seen the first one. It just wouldn't have happened because they don't need to fight each other. They're only fighting each other because of the vast sums they're getting for pay-per-view. You know, uh, and it's been around a long, long time. And some of the pay-per-view that people moan about now is infinitely superior to some of the earlier pay-per-views 10 and 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Trust me, there was some rubbish that we used to put out on pay-per-view. And just lastly, where does course, where does boxing go? Where does, wh- what's the future of boxing? Is it more KSI versus Logan Paul? Is it more... Mm. Is the zone the answer? Streaming, um, individual channels like uh, I know Box Nation is no more, but um, individual channels, bespoke channels. I think uh, can it carve out its niche? I, I think because it, it's it's always been around. Yeah. People have written obituaries about it yeah. every decade. Yeah, there've been a lot of uh, early obituaries. I think that we are going to have an awful lot of bespoke events one-off events you know I, mean, I always thought Mayweather would just have his one-off you know on his own channel somehow somewhere I think we're going to get a lot more of that I think we're going to have a lot more mishmashing with things like the KSI Logan Paul uh, situation uh, I don't think we're going to get uh, massive clear-ups in the sense that we're not going to get rid of the four champions uh, and get down to one champion because quite simply if one champion's fighting once a year what about those other 15, 16 boxers I was telling you about they're going to disillusion they're going to A, go somewhere else not fight they're set up an alternative organisation so that not only is there a different belt but it's not even this type of boxing it's boxing over here and we will continue uh, to be under threat boxing from mixed martial arts and the, how slick and how brilliantly organised they are. Um, with the best fight the best all the time. With the best fight the best all the time and, and it, you know they get chewed up and spat out and, and, and people have to realise that the UFC operates in Great Britain on average about two and a half times a year. You know, we average on a weekend, not the first two weeks of January, not the last two weeks of December, but all the way through the year, we we average between six and ten shows. 
each weekend. UFC comes twice a year. And as for the rest of the mixed martial arts business, for God's sake, I mean, you know, literally, it's a toss-up between going to a jumble sale in a church hall and going to a mixed martial arts event in the Civic Hall next door. You know, they haven't got their they haven't got their act together. That mob. If UFC decided to do a Premier League and say we've got our Premier League here, we've got our Championship, we've got our first and second division, then we've got our Conference South, whatever it's called now, and our Con- If they ever did that, if they ever thought like that, then boxing might be under threat from mixed martial arts but it's not at the moment quite simply because um, then their presence isn't big enough they've got a loyal following don't get me wrong and they really know how to utilise the online community I'm a massive um, mixed martial arts fan I've been a massive mixed martial arts fan since the very start in fact the first ever report proper preview and proper fight report not a colour feature the first ever report was of was done by me when they fought, when they had a show in Manchester uh, about 17, 18 years ago. To this day, I was the only national pressman. I was the very first, the independent with me, did the first preview, first fight report on the Monday morning independent, independent apparently it was a stewards inquiry and it was decided not to cover it anymore because it was barbaric. God's honest truth. So I was, I was ahead of that curve, baby. Oh, no, no, that, and, and you can go and find that. And all the other people that claim they did it, here's the thing, here's the, here's the great thing about online. If you say you wrote something and you give me the date roughly and I look it up and you didn't and then you look up mine and I did, guess what? You're lying, I'm not. <laughs> Bingo! It's that simple. If there was no report on Grocop winning that day or Michael Bispin making his UFC debut in any other paper, The Sun, The Telegraph, or The Times, but there was in the indie, guess what? It's because the only one that covered it was me, Steve, UFC Bunce. True story. <laughs> Thank you very much, Buncey. My pleasure. <laughs> you can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Listener.